Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1. Making our way through the Old Testament. One book per Sunday. And uh, I'm glad you're here with us today to go through this book. This is uh, probably one of, as you heard uh, Judge Peterson mention, probably one of the favorite characters of the Old Testament. There's much for us to learn uh, from David today. Uh, I had somebody tell me one time, uh, or, or maybe not directly, but uh, tell me uh, through another church member that they had uh, attended here for a while and they uh, were struck by something that I said. Uh, maybe not something I said on one particular Sunday, but something that I seemed to maybe harp on over and over again. And that something was something called sin. Uh, they said, it just seems like Ryan preaches on sin a lot. And that, that turned them off to this church. They said that they, they were going somewhere else uh, because uh, that was, uh, that was uh, something that I, it seemed like every Sunday they left feeling guilty because I talked about sin. And it really, you know, if you, if you know the way God's wired me, uh, that didn't just bounce off of me. I mean, I kind of thought about that for a while, and I said, well, am I? You know, am I? Uh, preaching too much on sin. And uh, as, I, as I, I, I thought about it personally, I went back and listened to some messages, uh, uh, specifically in the time frame when they were here, and, and also just thought about what the Bible has to say about sin. It, it really struck me. I, I'm not sure I actually preach on sin enough. Uh, is, let's, let's just think about this, okay? I want to I give you some verses, okay? Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, 2 is our memory verse for this week. But, but think about what this verse says. We kind of get caught up in the beginning, especially, uh, especially when we consider uh, uh, just the, the, this, this great cloud of witnesses. But it's, look at the way it describes sin here at the end. Let us also lay aside every weight, right? Uh, but then specifically, and sin which clings so closely. Or some of your translations say, sin that so easily entangles which I actually prefer that translation, sin that so easily entangles. Or if you want to think about it, think about Jesus' response to sin, right? Uh, if your eye causes you to sin, what do you need to do? Tear it out, right? Okay, obviously Jesus speaking hyperbolically there. He didn't want you to actually tear out your physical eye. But he is saying that we need to have an extremely radical approach to dealing with our sin, right? Uh, and in fact, Romans chapter 6 uh, he puts it, Paul puts it this way, let not sin, therefore reign in your mortal body. Okay, so what is sin trying to do according to the first part of that verse? Sin's trying to reign in our members, in our hands, in our feet, in our, in our mind, in our heart, in all of our actions. Sin is, sin is seeking to rule over us. And so Paul says, don't let that happen because the wages of sin is death. Okay, sounds pretty serious to me. Wages of sin is death. And the reality of Scripture is that the, the pervasiveness of my sin, the pervasiveness of your sin is only exacerbated by the enemies of God that surround us. Concerning our inside, we have our fleshly passions at war within us. James talks about those desires that quarrel within us. Then we have the sinful world system around us, the, the institutions of culture that have been corrupted by sin and that actually uh, seek to win us to sinful agendas and habits. But then also the first Peter chapter five describes the devil as a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. How does he devour us? He devours us by pride, what Peter says in first Peter chapter five. He, he wants to use our temptations and our transgressions to condemn us and to separate us from the very thing for which we were created to live in, and that is the presence of God. And I'd say sin's pretty serious. I'd say it's something we really need to get our minds wrapped around, because it sounds like it's a pretty deadly threat to all of us. And I don't know, I, I really wish I'd had more time to, to, to talk to this person, but so often as it happens, and maybe you know people like this, and maybe they've departed from this church for one reason or another, and, and they just kind of try to do it quietly. And we never hear from them. And, and, and that, that does actually break my heart, because 
I, I, I want to I try to engage people where they are and try to help them understand why. Why do we talk about the things that we talk about? Why do, we, why do I preach about the things that I preach about? Why do we have the convictions that we have? These are not things that we take lightly. It's something that we want to be very diligent, especially in terms of relationships and how we, how we relate to one another. Because like we saw last week at the beginning of the message, that we're a family. This is, we, want to, we want to cultivate the kind of relationships here that last a lifetime. We want to love each other and care about each other. And you know what prevents us from loving and caring about each other so often? You know what causes us to try to leave quietly? Sin. We've got a common enemy. And that's what we want to try to learn about today. Is this common enemy that not only seeks to separate us from the presence of God, but also from the presence of each other. The, the common enemy that would not only divide us from eternal life and from our Lord, from our Creator, but to divide us from the people who love us the most. And that enemy is sin. Romans chapter 8 talks about how we're supposed to deal with that sin. We're supposed to put to death that sin. Or as the Puritan John Owen warned, he says, he says be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And this is this personal call to kill our own sin because it's only as we know the depths of our sin that we know the depths of God's mercy. We don't want to just call sin for what it is because we want to harp on sin, but we want to, we want to know sin and specifically sin within us. We want to come to grips with the sin within us because it's only as we, as we come to grips with the sin that's within us that we can come to grips with the mercy of God that's been extended to us. And all throughout the Old Testament, we've seen thus far the, the deadly effects of sin and the depths of God's mercy as extended to people. You think about Genesis and Adam and Eve, how God said the, the, the moment that you, that you disobey me, the moment that you eat of that, the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. Well, they didn't die physically, which they should have. They died spiritually, and God kept them alive physically. He kept them close physically. Even though they weren't in the garden anymore, the Adam and Eve kind of camped out right, right outside the garden, and God still had interaction with them. And then as the humanity went on, you think about Exodus and the mercy of God that was shown to Moses, who's a murderer, right? And yet God called him into his presence, and God called him for a purpose. God called him to himself. We think about uh, numbers and, and uh, the book of Numbers and Israel complaining all throughout the wilderness. They'd seen God work uh, to deliver them from Egypt, and yet they just complain over and over and over again. And, and I don't know about you, but like, that really resonated with me, with me with the fact that I complain so much. And what do I deserve when I complain? Nothing, right? I'm not entitled to anything, and yet God mercifully puts up with me, provides for me, corrects me. And we saw... Judges, and we could just say all of the book of Judges, right? I mean, God, God mercifully sustains his people, provides deliverers for them, even though they just perpetuate this cycle of sin. And last week we saw sin ruin the life of Israel's first king. His name was Saul. Only to hear about God raising up a man who was meant to be an example to Israel and to us of the kind of heart that God commends. You remember we talked about the fact that David was humble. We talked about the fact that David was a, a worshiper, and in fact, we're going to go through the entire book of Psalms next week, right? So that'll be the longest book we've done so far, 150 chapters in, in one day. And, and really, it's, it's easy to understand because Psalms is, uh, the book of Psalms is the book of worship. And so why is it that the largest book in the entire Bible is devoted solely to the worship of God? Because like we've said for years and years and years, we were created to be Worshippers, and it's just a matter of who we are worshiping. And the book of Psalms wants to inform our perspective of how awesome this God is that we worship. And guess who wrote many of those Psalms? David, which is why we're doing Psalms next week. And David was loyal to godly allegiances, and he cultivated God-centered relationships. And last week, we, we rejoiced in David's humility to see the trademarks of of this godly man, a man that God said, this is a man after my own heart. But this week, from that very same man, just as Judge Peterson pointed out, we're going to learn painfully about the universal landmarks on the pathway to failure. And so we saw last week these characteristics, these trademarks of humility in the life of David. And if you've ever felt like you are a walking contradiction, 
If you ever felt like a hypocrite, then guess who, guess who your favorite character in the Bible could be? David. Because just like us, David is a walking contradiction. David had unsurrendered areas of his life. David had, had dark spots in his soul that he was hiding from other people. And this story is written so that you can learn from David. And so that's exactly what we want to do today. And remember, that's the whole purpose of this series. This idea that as we learn the story that God has written for us to know here in the Old Testament and New Testament the Bible, that as we know his story, that God brings clarity and definition to our story. I think that's what God does, is that God, God brings our calling, our life, our purpose, our giftedness. God, God brings our past our present and our future, into HD vision as we meditate and saturate our minds with his story. And so at the end of the first book of uh, Samuel, which remember these were two books together originally. I mean, these were one book. We've split them up into two because uh, in our English translations because it was so long, right? But there are three main characters of the book of Samuel, first and second Samuel. That's Samuel the prophet. King Saul was the first king. And then David. And in the book of 1 Samuel, we saw uh, God established Samuel, God used Samuel, and then Samuel anointed Saul as the first king. And we saw the rise and the fall of Saul. And as we saw the fall of Saul, we saw the rise of David, who was going to be the second king in Israel. He was anointed when he was very young uh, as the second king in Israel. And at the end of the first book, Saul had died. And at the beginning of the second book, we find David, who has been anointed as the next king, being told the news of Saul's death. And so let's jump in to 2 Samuel chapter 1. And in chapters 1 through 10, we're going to see the rise of King David. The rise of King David. Now, 2 Samuel chronicles the life of David in two movements, okay? And that's chapters 1 through 10, and then chapters uh, 11 through 20. And then chapters 21 through 24 are what's called an epilogue. It's kind of like a, a closing few chapters that summarize David and Saul, because you remember what happened in the first couple of chapters of the first book of Samuel. You had Hannah, right? Samuel's mother. And what happened was that she, in, these, in, that, those first, uh, in her song, she basically gave a, uh, a summary of what was coming in the entirety of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And so at the end of the book of 2 Samuel, you have the writer looking back and saying everything that Hannah said was right. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You saw God oppose Saul, and Saul devolve into madness last week, and you're going to see God oppose David, and yet David respond quite differently than Saul did. And so in chapter 1, David hears about Saul and Jonathan's death, just like we saw in, the first, in 1 Samuel, where Hannah's poem encapsulates the message of both 1st and 2nd Samuel. The first chapter of 2nd Samuel contains some pretty, some pretty incredible foreshadowing. Look at verse 25 uh, of 2nd Samuel, Samuel chapter 1. 2nd Samuel chapter 1 verse 25. David is responding to Jonathan and Saul's death. And his first words are, How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. Man, I told you uh, uh, when we were studying the book of Ruth that you might be uncomfortable with the way that David describes his friendship with Jonathan. But that just goes to show you not how weird Jonathan and David's friendship was, but how, how uh, maybe uh, more cultural our relationships are as men today than they are biblical. That we think that we have to have these, these, um, these barriers that keep us from, from really knowing each other and getting to know each other and keep each other accountable and encourage each other and spur one another on in the Lord. We talked about that a little bit last week. But there you have in David's uh, very own description how important Jonathan was to him as a brother, how they covenanted together to spur one another on to righteousness, right? And protect one another. And Jonathan's dead now and David's heartbroken. And then he ends in verse 27 to say, how the mighty have fallen. If you want to know the, an encapsulated message of uh, David's life in the book of 2 Samuel, underline that phrase, how the mighty have fallen. Because just like Hannah, 
and her poem foreshadowed what was going to happen in 1 Samuel, those words encapsulate and foreshadow what's going to happen to David in 2 Samuel. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. And so in chapters 2 through 6, David's established as king of Judah. He experiences success. He's, his success is, uh, is marked by military victory. He, he experiences God's blessing as he uh, seeks to make Jerusalem, which he renames Zion. He makes Jerusalem not only the, um, the, uh, the, the physical capital, capital of Israel, the governmental capital of Israel, but he also makes it the, he wants to make it the religious capital of Israel. And he uh, brings the ark back into, uh, the, uh, the, in, into Jerusalem. And it's this big procession, it's this big parade, because it's this sign, once again, remember the ark was kind of a sign of God's presence on the people of Israel. And the Philistines, because of Saul's, uh, or because of Israel, uh, the Philistines had captured the ark, and then they brought the ark back to kind of a, um, a place in Israel where it was kind of on the fringe of Israel. But now they bring it back into the center of Jerusalem. And so it's this kind of uh, galvanizing of this, this uh, uh, Israelite or Hebrew identity. They're all rejoicing because now we're one. We've got this king. It's amazing. He's this great leader. God's awesome. Look at what he's done for us. You haven't seen uh, the height of celebration like this since the people left Israel and were on their way to Sinai, since they crossed over the Red Sea and saw God's amazing power, since they crossed over the Jordan as, uh, as the people going into the Promised Land and as they saw the walls of Jericho fall. You haven't seen this kind of rejoicing in this generation, but now you do. And so God's blessing is on David. And in chapter 7, what happens, and this is kind of one of the most important chapters as far as the rise of David. In chapter 7, uh, David is connected with God's covenant to Abraham. You see, what happens is David basically kind of sitting in his palace in Jerusalem and kind of saying, man, God, look at, look at all you've done. He says, God, because we know David's heart, right? He's a worshiper. So what's he want to do? God, I want to build you a house. You've, I want to build you a temple here in Jerusalem. God, what would you think about that? And because, once again, David's got this close relationship with the Lord where he's continually pouring his heart out to the Lord, and as we'll see in the Psalms next week, uh, both the, the things that you typically think we say to the Lord, like the good things, the praise, the honor, the adoration, he also has the confession and, and maybe some of the complaints that he lays before the Lord's feet. And so this close relation, in this close relationship with God, David's pouring out his heart saying, God, you've done all this for me, and I, I want to do this for you. I want to build you a house. I want to build you a temple. I want, I want your presence to come and reside here because I love being around you is essentially what he's saying to God. And God says, listen, David, I know that you want to build me a house, but that's not for you. Instead, I want to build you a house, but not the one you got. I want to build you a house as in like a dynasty. And David's just kind of blown away in chapter 7. And it comes to uh, the point of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. I've got it, up there, uh, got it up on the screen, just a summary of it, but look at it in your Bible. And you can actually underline it, because once again, this is, this is where we've seen Israel come from being, uh, from the the, the, the seed of the old man Abraham and his wife Sarah, right, who were childless. And we've seen them come from uh, being there to a, a nation in slavery in Egypt and then going through the wilderness and then trying to conquer the, the land of Canaan. We've seen them come all this way. And, and the whole purpose was God established Israel because he wanted his blessing to be restored that had been lost when Adam and Eve sinned. And that blessing was meant to be restored to the nations through Israel. And so God wants David to have it very, very clearly in his head. He wants us to have it very clearly in his head how this whole story relates to one another. And so God tells David in chapter 7 that the way the blessing is going to come back through Israel to the nations is that he's going to set up David's son as the ruler of an eternal throne. Look at verse 13. He shall build, this is uh, God talking about David's son. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom 
forever. Okay, now, who was David's son that would eventually ascend to the throne? A little Bible trivia for you. Solomon, right? And so the, the, the common thought process is, well, okay, he's talking about Solomon, but what's the only problem? What's the, what's the very last word in that verse? Forever. Solomon's not going to live forever. Nobody lives forever, right? So it can't be talking about just Solomon, right? This is a promise of a son of David that's not the son next generation, but he's saying that somebody's going to come in your line, David. I'm going to send somebody in your line, in your family tree, on down your family tree. I'm going to send somebody, and he is going to be the eternal ruler, not just of Israel, but of the world. I will establish his kingdom forever so that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Once again, one of the other reasons that we're doing this is because we have this awesomely unified story in the Bible, and yet we, we don't really know how it all fits together, right? And so we're drawing these arcs over to the New Testament and saying, oh, okay, okay. So it's not just a couple of different places. It's this theme that is woven throughout every single book. And we've been highlighting that and seeing that. God is at work in much bigger ways than you and I have even imagined or conceived. And reading the, the Bible like we're doing and looking at these stories like we're doing and connecting them, I pray, is enlarging your idea of how God is not only at work back then, but how God is at work even now in ways that you cannot even see. And we're called to trust Him. We're called to just walk in surrender and faith. And David experiences that. And in chapters 8 through 10, more of David's successes, including military victories over the Philistines, over the Ammonites and the Syrians, but also a really touching story about David, who is once again extending mercy because he's, he's at least in a lot of ways, he's a godly man. He extends mercy to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, which takes a lot of practice to say, okay, Mephibosheth, right? Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son, and what had happened was that in, uh, his, his, uh, basically his babysitter uh, had dropped him and injured his feet, so he was permanently disabled. But because of the covenant that David has with Jonathan, David essentially takes Mephibosheth as his own son. And if there's ever a passage that shows uh, how the church of Jesus Christ should welcome those who are disabled into the kingdom of God, into the presence of God, it's, it's that story about Mephibosheth. That's what, why it's one of my favorites. That's 2 Samuel chapter 10. And so, or in 2 Samuel chapter 9. But as we get into 2 Samuel chapter 11, we go from, the, from David's rise to David's fall. From David's rise... To David's fall, how the mighty have fallen. Because chapters 11 and 12 tell the story of David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband Uriah. And so we've got to ask the question, how did this worshiper, how did this humble man of God who extended mercy to Jonathan's son, how did this King David, who we've grown to love, who Israel had grown to grown to love and celebrate and unite under. How did he go from success to failure so quickly? And so that's what we want to spend just a few minutes on, just camping out here for a minute as we, as we need to. Because once again, this story has been written for us to identify and understand so that we can directly apply it to our life. And this will be one of the places that you absolutely can do that. And so I'm going to give you several uh, several of these, these uh, landmarks on the universal pathway to failure. It's universal because this is, this is all of us, and these landmarks are universal as well. And so, universal landmarks on the pathway to failure. The first one is compromise. Compromise. So, where do you think, anybody want to take a guess at where David's first compromise came? Any idea? Too many wives. Absolutely. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17. I'm going to read it to you. You don't have to turn there. But this is under the subheading called 
uh, laws concerning Israel's kings, okay? So, was, I mean, they didn't have the subheadings in the Hebrew Old Testament, but it was pretty clear what this section was. And guess what Deuteronomy 17, verse 17 says? And he, the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Right? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. You're one man, you can only handle one woman. Right? That's, that's basically what he's saying. God is saying, listen, I know your heart better than you do. When I give you a command, follow it because I love you. When you choose to sin, you choose to what? Suffer. And so when we see a command of God, God's, God's not saying I want to limit your joy and limit your freedom. He's saying I want you to experience life without guilt, life without shame, life without conviction. So, so enjoy your freedom within these boundaries. But recognize that when you jump over that boundary, you're not going to recognize it was, a, it was a fence, but you're going to recognize it was a guardrail that was keeping you from destruction. The first place that David compromised was that he had more than one wife. We know about David marrying uh, Michael, who was Saul's daughter, or Michal. I don't know how you say that, honestly. It's, it's kind of hard uh, to say, but... Uh, we know he married Saul's daughter. We also know that he married a couple of other ladies. But then 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13 tells us this. It says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. So you see, a lot of people look at this and they stumble, right? Because they think, well, how could God bless a man who is so deeply flawed? Well, that's a great question. Because that's everybody in Scripture. How can God, if, if, if you want to understand something about the character of God, recognize that when God looks down upon humanity and he wants to use any of us, he's going to have to use people who are deeply flawed. Okay, so find some kind of solace in that. That God's already obviously provided a pathway of mercy to flow. Because David was a deeply flawed individual. But David's polygamy was not prescribed by God. But rather it was a cultural practice that David should have rejected. This is sexual immorality. It is objectification. And this compromise, you see, this is the thing. Everything you do is, is brought about by something you believe. Did you realize that? All of your behavior is rooted in a belief. And what David was doing in identifying with the culture around him rather than the covenant laws of God that God had given them to shape them as a nation... Rather than identifying with those laws and choosing to identify with the culture, what David did was that he began to believe that women were objects to be possessed rather than helpmates to be treasured. He devalued God's covenant of marriage. And men, that's a bad place to go, right? I mean, it's just, it, it, that's not where we want to be. Because once again, God's laws and God's commands shape us to make us who we need to be. And so David took more than one wife. And, and this led him to believe that he is entitled to and can have any woman he wants. And then we experience chapters 2 through 10, which are the sections where God gives David great success. And we call it comfort here, just to stick with the alliteration. First step is compromise. Second step is comfort. Do you know that success reveals what's really in your heart as much as trials. Do we talk about trials a lot, don't we? We talk about suffering a lot. We say, you know, suffering uh, refines us. It really brings out what's on the inside. But can I tell you that success will show you what's really inside of you, especially, especially when you get success and that success gives you an opportunity to be self-sufficient. And when you're self-sufficient, that's what opens the door to the next step. Because an unguarded heart will go from comfort to complacency in a heartbeat. Complacency. What is complacency? It's a satisfaction with the status quo. Things are all right the way they are. We're doing good, guys. Let's just enjoy it. Let's just, let's just kick back for a few minutes. Let's take a deep breath. <sighs> Victory. Right? That comfort leads us to complacency. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when what? When kings go out to battle, David sent Joab 
and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now David's the king over Israel, so where should he be? Battle, right? He should, he should be leading his army out to war. That's, that's what they did. That's, that's where he should have been. That was his post. That was his job. That was what he should have been doing. But David had had so much victory, it had made him so comfortable that he was like, yeah, those guys aren't a threat anymore. We don't have to keep our guard up. Guess what, guys? An unguarded strength is a double weakness. An unguarded strength is a double weakness. And David experiences that full-fledged right here because what does he do? He remains at Jerusalem. And let me tell you, there's nothing worse than a man with energy and nothing to do. Amen? Some things haven't changed, have they? There is nothing worse than a man sitting on his rear end that has energy, that has motivation, that has desire, but has nothing to do. And so the text literally reads that it happened late one afternoon. Uh, guys, if you want to get a good picture of what this looks like, that David had been playing video games all day or watching Netflix all day when he arose from his couch. Right? I mean, that's, that's the modern translation of it. David had been, had been wasting his time, been doing nothing productive. Guys, this is, this is where we just need to come to grips with the fact that God made us to be aggressive. God made us to, to, to do. God made us to, to get out there and work with our hands, right? And I see that in so many of you men. You're, you're so entrepreneurial. You're so productive. And I praise God for that because that's wired within us, right? That's biblical manhood. And what we see in David is we see a, a passivity come into his life that is brought about by this complacency where he just sits back, he kicks back, and he thinks he can rest on his laurels. And what happens is, is that in the process of him wasting time, sin has sprouted in his mind because he's been lazy. And this complacency that David should be leading his army out to battle leads him to carelessness. Because he got, as he got his rear end up off the couch, he starts walking on the roof. And 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 and 3 says that he saw from that roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And he said, is, this, is, it not, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? You see, David, having his behavior rooted in belief, he's the king. He's the top dog. I can have whatever I want. Is that a righteous belief? Absolutely not. Every bit of your behavior is rooted in what you believe. So be very careful about what you believe. Guard your heart above all, for it is the wellspring of life. Right? David believed falsely, and therefore he acted unrighteously. And so we know the rest of the story, don't we? That David goes and gets Bathsheba pregnant and then realized that he needed to fix the situation that he created. So he calls Joab, who had gone, uh, who, who was his, his general, his commanding general. Now think about what's happened in David's life. Jonathan, his best friend, had died and had not been replaced, Right? Because let's face it, it's extremely hard to replace a best friend, isn't it? That's why we need to cherish and nurture these relationships instead of, instead of put them away so quickly when we get slighted, right? And so Joab wasn't a friend. You know what Joab was? Joab was a yes man. Joab liked the fact that he was, he was the hatchet guy of the king. He was the bag man. He was the guy that David would call when he needed the dirty work done. And so he goes from being, get this, from being, from compromising to being comfortable to being complacent to being careless, now to entering into a conspiracy, to bringing in this guy to help him take it a step further. Look at verse 15 of chapter 11. He tells him, he says, he, he well, just go to verse 14. Think of the cunning. Think about how the the awesomeness of David's heart has been twisted, and now it's awesomely deceptive. 
In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of who? Uriah was carrying his own death wish, and he didn't, didn't even realize it. He had been so loyal to the king, right? He wouldn't go down and be with his wife as David wanted to fix the problem in the first place. He slept outside of the king's quarters because he was loyal. He was an a, a exemplary soldier. And David says, well, it's not going to be fixed this way. So he gives Uriah his own death warrant and takes it. Uriah takes it to Joab. In verse 15, it says in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And so David conspires with Joab, and it says in verse 16, as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were valiant men. Talking about valiant enemies. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. And so what happens now is incredible to think about how the mighty have fallen. Because we've gone from compromise to comfort to complacency to carelessness to conspiracy to now a callousness. What were we rejoicing in last week? The humility of David. Now, humility is when you know the thing that you've done is wrong and you own up to it. You admit it. You confess it. You repent as widely as it's known. Things that you've done that you know you need to repent. But when you become callous, you know you need to repent, but that would take too much humility. That would mean that you'd have to actually say what you did and say that it was wrong. And so think about David has now gone from humility to the opposite of humility. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. David is now filled up with the pride of self-righteousness. Because you know what he does, just to summarize the story for you? Everybody sees that one of David's mighty men, as he's called at the end of 2 Samuel, Uriah, who's like this, one of the spec ops of, of Israel at that time, that Uriah, who was known all about, had died. And poor Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, is back home pregnant. And oh my goodness, what is going to happen? Because... because now she's going to be a widow, and this child is going to grow up on its own. Oh, oh what, what, what are we going to do for this woman? And David says, oh, I know what to do. I'll bring her in. I'll make her my wife. And every, what is everybody going to say about that? Look at our awesome king. What a leader. We love that guy. That's exactly why we wanted him to be king. And David's like, yeah, I'm pretty awesome, aren't I? And what happens in David's mind at that point? Victory. I got it. It's covered up. Nobody's ever going to know. And we know the baby's born. David's looking like a national hero. But what had actually happened is, is that had, as David had hid it, under layers in his own heart. You see, this is the thing about the choose to sin, choose to suffer. The misery grew inside of him. But what did David have to do on the outside? I got to wear the mask, right? And that's where the story of Nathan, God reveals to the prophet Nathan what's happened and Nathan comes. Remember, it's so funny. Joe Nathan, Jonathan, was his best friend, 1 Samuel. Now you got Nathan the prophet being what David needed at this time because he comes and he confronts David and he tells him the story about the man with the lamb. You, you guys know that story, right? And he, the rich man who had a whole flock and the poor man who had a lamb that like slept, you know, like cuddled with him in bed, you know, at night. And, and the rich man takes the, the, the one lamb. You, you, you guys know the story. And David filled up with his self-righteous zeal because he's covered it up so much inside of him and he, know, he knows that it can't come out. When Nathan says, what should, what should happen to that rich man who stole that, that poor man's one lamb? David says, that man should be put to death. And Nathan says, you are, the, you are that man. You've done just that. You think you've hidden it under all those layers, but I'm telling you, David, your sin has found you out. 
And see, the awesome thing is, is what we're going to see next week, but we're going to see it a little bit today, is that we get an insight to the internal misery of David through the Psalms. Listen, the most miserable person in the world is not somebody who doesn't know the Lord, but it's somebody who knows the Lord and is walking against him. Let me say that again. The most miserable person in the world is not somebody who is cut off from the Lord, who doesn't know the Lord, but it's somebody who has experienced the presence of God, experienced the call of God, experienced knowing the will of God, and then yet you walk against him. And that's exactly where David is because he says things like this in Psalm 51 where he tried to bury it. He tried to look like a hero, but he knows, chapter, uh, Psalm 51 verse 3, that his transgressions and his sin is ever before him. You know what that means? That means when David shuts his eyes at night, all he can think about is how he's killed one of his own men. All he can think about is how, is how Uriah's dead and Bathsheba's pregnant and what have I done? And everybody thinks I'm this, but I'm really not this. And it was keeping him awake at night. Psalm 66, verse 17 and 18, I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. But if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. That's scary. You ever felt like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling? Could it be because you have hidden something so deep and God's trying to help you feel that distance so that you begin to search and say, God, where, where have I gone wrong? Only to find out that you know what you've done. Psalm chapter 32, verses 3 and 4, For when I kept silent, when I didn't confess, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Talking about that conviction. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Have you experienced a loss of victory, spiritual victory in your life? You're not seeing the gospel transform you as it did when you were first a believer and things were so fresh, right? Could it be because you have become calloused to your sin? You've suppressed it. Now there's just this chaos in your life and this conviction that is following you about. You see, David is confronted and David repents, but the damage is done. Because what you choose determines who you become. We talk about choice. We talk about the fact that David, I mean, uh, the fact that uh, Israel being commanded by Moses, being commanded by Joshua, and God speaking to them through him says, says, obey my commands and thus choose life. But if you go against me, you're choosing death. What has David experienced here? He's experienced the life of God flowing through him as he surrendered to him. But then when he goes against him, when he becomes a murderer, when he becomes an adulterer, when he becomes a, a self-righteous king who, who has no honor, he has no integrity, what happens? Is that he experiences what it's like to be cut off from the presence of of Almighty God, the place where he'd found his delight is now haunting him. And he becomes a kind of father that's still passive. And he becomes a kind of leader who can't recognize what's going on. And because of that, chapters 14 through 20 show us the devastation that was inside of David goes outside of David into his own family as this horrific act of sexual assault takes place in his own family. And then in his own kingdom, as his son Absalom goes and stages a full-fledged revolt against his own father. And David's on the run, and Absalom finally dies, and David returns to his throne. But this time, he's a broken man dwelling on his sad, the sad consequences of his life. And so, this is a just a, a quick summary of what we've learned because the fact is is that we love David. We've seen David, right? David has been an awesome man of God and now David is a broken man. How did he get here? Well, that's because sin is deadly. And we always need to treat it as such. It's nothing to, to toy around with. Sin cuts you off from the presence of God. And where did God design for you to live? In his presence. And if you allow sin to flourish in your heart and in your mind, and you believe falsehood, you believe deception, then you begin to walk in unrighteousness and impurity. 
You begin to care more about blending in with the world around you than living for God's glory. And this is everyone's problem. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is our common struggle. This has infected all of us. We are, no one is immune to this. Nobody, is, nobody, has grown, nobody has received some kind of inoculation where you're no longer you know, tempted. That's not real. And in, in the past, we've looked up to these awesome men and women in the church, right? As if they're not creatures with clay feet. We all are. We're all broken. You see, for those who've never trusted Christ, they're stuck in a lifestyle of idolizing their sin. And our temptations and our habits, if we're away from Christ, what they do is they cling to us and they ultimately will take us down to hell if we die in those transgressions and those sins. But for the believer, we've seen the Spirit's power leading us out of the wilderness of sin and into the promised land of God's presence. We've experienced His victory as we hear the truth and as we respond to it. But the moment that we hear truth and we begin to say, not right now, God... I'm too busy doing this. We begin to become less and less and less sensitive to his voice. Until one day, God, where are you? I can't hear you anymore. And guess what? It's not God who's done something. God hasn't changed. But instead, we have harbored sin in our hearts and our minds. If that's you, like I confess to you, that's me today, that you still look at your life and you still see these unsurrendered areas, I want to encourage you as you become aware of these areas, as, as God calls you to surrender, to believe the truth, to walk in the truth, then you need to repent. And that's one of those words we, we throw around in the church a lot, but we rarely define. We want to make sure we understand what that means. To repent means that you've owned up to the consequences. You own up to your sin. You confess it to the Lord. You confess it as widely as it's known. You, you seek accountability from a godly friend. You take captive known battlegrounds for the Lord. You replace deception with truth. And you walk in worship and obedience. You see, I was driving from Auburn one night, and I saw this sign on the road. It said, caution, sinkholes may appear without notice. It's a dark road, it's a late night, and I'm thinking, oh my. That's a, you know, you like see caution, deer crossing, right? Okay, we can deal with that. Caution, sinkholes may appear without notice. And immediately what pops in my mind is like that, right? Well, guess what? If you've ever studied how that happens, that's not a quick thing, is it? What happens to create a sinkhole? Something that's devastating and catastrophic. It's erosion that happens over a period of time underneath the surface until all of a sudden one day there's a tragic fallout. Believer, if you want any reason to kill your sin, let it be so that your own kids, like David's, don't fall into the sinkhole of your bad choices. Things that you've chosen to exalt above God, things you've chosen to value more than what God has, has called upon you to value, what you're doing is you're causing a slow erosion to come about in your life. I don't tell you this once again, just like I began. I don't, I don't tell you this to try to heap guilt on you. I'm telling you this because God has opened my eyes to the fact that these things are happening in this heart unless I intentionally fight against it in worship and obedience and holiness. And I've seen way too many kids in this town 
get sucked in to the sinkhole that happens because their parents chose to value things more than God. I don't, I don't want that to happen to anybody else. And if I can make that choice for you, if I, could, if, I could, if I could just sit down with you and shape your life, I would. But that's not what God wants me to do. God wants you to get into His presence, and God wants you to hear His voice, and God wants you to be shaped by His law so that you can say, yes, 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 Lord, and become the kind of man, the kind of woman, the kind of husband and father and wife and mother that God wants you to be. But guess what cuts you off from that presence? Sin. It doesn't just cut you off when churches harbor sin as well. When a number of individuals within the church harbor sin, it cuts us off as well. And so what we're going to do, we're going to have a, a time of invitation here in just a moment. And it's going to be an opportunity for you to take this message to heart. And we're going to, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. It's just going to be just like a normal invitation. But at the end of that invitation, our chairman of the deacons, Jason Bryant, is going to come up. And he's going to tell you about a very real need that we have for God to provide vision for us as a church family. Because we've been blessed immensely. If you've been around in business meetings, you know we've been blessed immensely over the past few months. But we don't want that comfort to lead us to what? Complacency. So how do we fight against that? Hit our knees in prayer, church. And so after you have an opportunity to respond to the truth that you've heard during this invitation and say, God, is there any wicked way within me? Search me, try me, let me know. You confess, you repent. Then Jason's going to come and he's saying, church, we need to pray. And guess what we're going to do then? We're going to pray. We're going to pray, and we want to just continue to commit and surrender ourselves to the Lord. I know we're kind of going long as a service today, and I, we, just, we just don't care, okay? It, this, is, this is the most important thing for us to respond to the Lord in truth and for, for us to pray cooperatively in a specific direction. So I want to encourage you. This invitation is not just some, yeah, God, I heard that. Okay, yeah, I want to do this tomorrow. This is a, hey, God... I want to respond to this right now because I recognize we are in this thing together and we need to hear from you. So I'm going to pray, then we're going to have our invitation, then we're going to pray some more. And I want to encourage you to come to grips with what the Lord's calling you to do today through this message. So let's pray together.